Hello, my wee gordies. Just a quick message before we go into my longest episode yet. I just wanted to give a quick warning that from around the halfway mark until the end, my voice gets a bit rough near the end of several sentences and even words. This is mostly because my voice was getting really, really sore while recording. I know now that if I ever have another episode with nearly as many notes, to either do it as a two-parter or record over two days and not just one night. But okay, that's all. Now I'll let you go ahead and get to the episode, and I love you. Welcome to episode 23, y'all. I hope you're doing well this fine Friday morning, or afternoon, or evening. Heck, it might be Tuesday today. Whatever day it is, I hope it's a good one and you are happy. But okay, today is, can you guess it, another first for the pod. Today is going to be my first cryptid topic, which until I began my notes, I wasn't really aware of. Which is sad, but I am here now and that's what counts, right? I went down the list I had jotted down and a particular one caught my eye that I hadn't really heard of before. And hopefully you have not either. Today, we are covering the cryptid known as the Dewey Lake Monster. I'm purposefully keeping this intro short because these are officially the longest set of notes I've had yet. With that being said, let's dig on in. So, the Dewey Lake Monster, sometimes known as the Sister Lakes Sasquatch or Michigan Bigfoot, is given its name from the lake it calls home. Though, there are alleged sightings of the beast from Doajack to Decatur, Michigan. The range seems to be within 15 miles or a hair over 24 kilometers from Dewey Lake. The monster was believed to mostly stay in the water or deep in the wooded area and only come out to terrorize at night. Though, there are some supposed encounters that happen in the daytime. Now, in description, the monster is usually described as being huge, with estimates ranging from about 500 all the way up to 1,000 pounds, which is roughly 226 to 453 kilograms. It's generally agreed that he has scaly skin below very thick fur that covers basically the whole body. The fur is generally seen as being red or a reddish brown in color. The monster stands around 9 to 10 feet tall or 2.7 to 3 meters tall. And a few other features the beast allegedly has are gills, webbed toes and or fingers, elongated arms, and large bear-like claws. In sound, it usually has a high-pitched scream or roar. Though there are some claims of it having a sound of a crying baby, goose, or even a bullfrog. The beast tends to have a horrible, strong stench, usually described as a, quote, swamp smell. And one talent I found very fascinating is that the monster seems to be able to get up to really high speeds for its size. Some encounters claim around 50 plus miles per hour, or roughly 80 kilometers per hour. One sheriff, a Mr. Paul Parrish, was quoted saying, quote, It was one of the strangest times in 33 years of southwestern Michigan law enforcement. 
We investigated it long and hard, but we were never able to come up with whatever it was. But some good, honest, legitimate people reported it, unquote. And with good old Paul's words ringing in our ears, we're now going to dive into the alleged sightings of the creature that terrorized the people of the Sister Lakes area through most of the 1960s and even up until recently. Okay, but first I'm going to have to thank the book Sightings, Dewey Lake Monster by J.F. Roto-Rome and Kindle for their free 30-day trial. I was fortunate enough to find the Facebook page titled Dewey Lake Monster, where they had most, if not all, of the news clippings from the time of the original sightings. But the book made it a lot easier to organize the information and even gave some extra information like the temperature for that day and fun little tidbits like that. If you have time after the pod, I highly recommend reading the book as well for even more details on these individual encounters. Though, quick warning, this episode is easily 90% encounters, so strap in for a long ride. With that being said, we'll begin with our first alleged sighting of our pal, Mr. Dewey Lake. We skip back in time to the 1st of June in 1962. We meet four boys by the names of Jeff Hall, Al Johnson, Gary Lee, and Jimmy Andrew. They were enjoying the summer weather in the north part of Doajack, playing around and getting all that pent-up child energy out. After getting the rumblies in their tumblies, they decided to break and get some food. The boys split up to race to where the food was kept at the bottom of the hill, both pairings going different ways. Jeff and Jimmy happened upon some wild raspberries and began gobbling them up on the way to their main meal. The boys began to roughen each other up a little bit as they went, but all of a sudden, Jimmy stopped and wouldn't move forward, seeming frozen in fear. Assuming the other boy was playing around, Jeff pushed him and ended up doing so hard enough for the motionless boy to fall. Still oblivious to what his friend had already seen, Jimmy had the misfortune of dirt blowing into his eyes and his hat flying off in the breeze. It's then, as he was chasing his hat, he saw what made his friend stop in his tracks. The boys had seen the monster. Jeff described it looking like a, quote, a giant tree and even compared the beast to a totem pole later. In their fright and Jimmy finally coming out of his stupor, the boys began crying and yelling at the beast before running away. Jeff admitted that he began barking at the creature, but unsure why, assuming he was, quote, scared crazy. The boys got a good distance before turning around to look back, freaking out, wondering if what they saw even existed. Before they could even question it further, the beast roared and re-frightened the boys enough that they took off running once more. Jeff was later quoted saying, quote, I remember thinking it was a cool-looking thing. It was a red, hairy creature from the Black Lagoon, unquote. And an uncle said how Jimmy described the beast as, quote, a giant bear with an alligator body and long legs. Jeff and Jimmy finally made it back to their other friends, both quickly realizing something was amiss. Jimmy had peed his pants, and both boys looked like they had seen a ghost and were even gasping for breath. Jeff talked a big game about returning to kill the beast with his 12-gauge, but that never came to be, at least with his current group of friends. You see, this created a rift between them. Accusations of the two being cowards for running or straight-up lying about what they witnessed were thrown around but they always stuck to their story, positive of what they had witnessed that day. For our second encounter, we just skip ahead two months to July 20th of the same year. 
This time, our cast of characters are named Willis Wright, Kirk Stover, and Vinny Armstrong. Willis and Vinny were on their way to see Kirk's new mobile trailer for camping, but were late due to stopping on the way for some barbecue and drinks. When the two guys finally did arrive, they found their friend's car and trailer parked near Dewey Lake, but not the man himself. The trailer's door was open, so, with caution, the two men went inside. Assuming their friend had just stepped away, Willis and Vinny grabbed a few beers and chilled out, waiting for their friend to return. After around the 10-minute mark and no sign of Kirk, the two men began getting concerned. But almost as soon as the thought crossed their mind that something might be wrong, they began hearing the crunching of leaves outside. Before relief could fully wash over them, the trailer itself began to shake violently. It was to the point the men had to crawl out, fearing the trailer was eventually going to be flipped into the lake itself. Once on their feet, they saw Kirk running up, looking panicked. Vinny was trying to accuse Kirk of shaking the trailer, but before Willis could tell his friend how that wasn't possible, a shadow fell over them. They had seen it. It was huge. That was the only way to describe it. Though, luckily, after bearing witness to it for just a moment, it jumped into the lake and disappeared into its depths. Kirk then recounted how he thought they, Willis and Vinny, were messing with him, so he left his trailer to confront them about their tomfoolery. The man claimed he was grabbed from behind and flung to the dirt before being slowly dragged to the lake. Somehow, he was able to break away and ended up seeing what had attacked him. He assumed it was a bear until he got a good look at it. He had no clue what the beast was, but the first thing he noticed was that it stood up like a man. He booked it and hid until his friends arrived. He waited for it to quiet down before dashing back to his trailer. Kirk moved to Florida only a few weeks later and never looked back. We move on to August 15th and meet Mr. Roger Long and Miss Helen Borges. They're currently relaxing at their vacation home on Michigan Lake, but couldn't resist giving their brand new motorboat a spin on the lake. At the beginning, it was just a casual ride with the lake all to themselves. Not another boat or soul in sight. It was when they were going around some small islands in the lake that the couple noticed something in the water with them. Roger turned off their boat and watched the creature swim. At first thinking it was a deer, waiting for it to reach one of the shores and climb out so they could find out what it really was. At first they just noted that whatever it was, it could swim fast and was big, with a thick and hairy body. The couple was in shock when the creature slowly came out of the water and began walking like a man, easily the height of two men. The beast seemed to shake the water off its fur before waltzing into the wooded area on the island. Dumbfounded, Roger and Helen sat on their boat, just taking in what they had just witnessed. After realizing they didn't hallucinate the being, the couple immediately reported the sighting to Michigan Department of National Resources. Later on, Roger confessed what he saw to his friend Mark, who lived in Chicago. Mark was fascinated by his friend's story and would go to visit the area often in hopes of seeing the beast himself. Roger encouraged him, admitting he would love to see it for himself at least once more. Only nine days later, on August 24th, we meet the Sheriff of Doa Jack, receiving several phone calls about claims of an explosion. Pinpointing the location, he sent out a few policemen to investigate. 
It doesn't take the men long after getting to the area on Priest Street to find where there's been an overturned car, more than likely the cause of the explosion that people heard. Fire and smoke still coming off the vehicle in heaps. After the men made sure there was no one inside the car, they made quick work on getting the fire out. The car was later linked to someone in South Bend, Indiana. It seems his brother was using it to take his girl out on a date. I'm sure panic was setting in on where these two kids had gone when a call came in from a woman nearby saying she had two teens at her pad, both seeming a little bit shaken up. Their names are Jan Arndt and Roy Townsend. The couple admitted that they pulled over for some, let's not beat around the bush, they were hoping to get some, but then they were rudely interrupted by something pushing at their car before flipping it over. They were able to quickly crawl out and assumed a car had somehow hit and flipped them over. Nope, no such luck. When they looked back at the car, they saw a huge beast looking like a man but reminding him of a bear, pummeling his brother's car to a pulp. Noping the heck out of there, Roy took off, leaving his girlfriend behind. Which I understand getting out of Dodge when the time comes, but at least grab your girl's hand, dude. Like, honestly, good luck on getting any now. Anyway, all is well in the end, because he did end up backing up and finding her along the highway as she was getting away herself. Together, they find the house of the woman that informed the sheriff of their arrival, and that was that. Of course, the police present didn't believe the teens and assumed they just didn't want to say what really happened to the car to get it to that condition. Luckily, one of the officers, a Mr. Gorley Jones, noticed that the scene of the crime matched what the kids were saying. Maybe not necessarily the monster part, but the fact that the skid marks on the ground indicated that the car was moved while it was in park and had to have been lifted to be flipped over instead of flipping while driving. His superior thought him foolish and ignored his findings, but Officer Jones did go back to investigate the area and noted that the greenery near the woods and water were obviously disturbed. But due to the foundation in both locations, no footprint was unfortunately left, leaving him at a dead end for what truly happened that night. Jumping a hair over a month, on September 30th, we meet Terry Jones, Patty Pasternak, Beth Hormel, and Randy Imes. These chums were a set of friends from Chicago staying at a cabin their parents rented in Twin Lakes. At the time of the incident, they were driving back from what the book said was a, quote, musical fountain, which I'd be 120% down to see. The group was roughly 15 minutes away from their cabin, going down a gravel road, when they suddenly saw what seemed to be a tree located in the center of the road. Terry was the lucky one driving that night and came to a stop wondering how to get around this odd obstacle when the tree itself turned around. The whole car was freaking out, including the two girls with them screaming their heads off. They were fortunate though, because instead of attacking their car as he did our prior couple, the beast basically shrugged and walked away calmly. He slipped into the swamp off to the side and disappeared from sight. This time, we don't jump at all and stay on September 30th to check in on five kids just hanging out. There's Jamie Shaw, Katie and Janie Keene, Dale Howe, and Mark Miller. After watching their shows, they went out on a hunt for a Luna Moth. But it was getting late, and the kids were getting ready to go to their respective homes. One of the children, Jamie, thought he saw some fireflies across the street. So he darted across because, you know, priorities. 
despite his friend yelling after him and telling him there were no fireflies. Ignoring his silly friend, Jamie continued to follow the tiny glowing lights, which ended up leading him into the swamp. For a short time, Jamie was missing. His friends took a while to notice he never returned since they went ahead and played for a bit until they were being called inside. It didn't take long for the hunt for the missing child to commence. Luckily, Jamie was found before the police had to get involved, but he was found curled up in the weeds, seeming frightened and crying. The boy's tale was simple. After he ran into the swamp, a humongous, thickly-haired man basically backhanded him to the ground before tossing him across the street. Which I see Shrek is getting really defensive of his swamp again. I thought we fixed this issue. <laughs> bad jokes aside, Jamie did have some scratches on his back with some really bad bruising and didn't return to school until three days after the incident. Skipping another month, we land on good old Sawin or Halloween, October 31st of the same year. We meet Betty Garcon, coming back from an evening in Detroit, Michigan. She didn't live near Glenwood, but that's where the train had stopped due to supposed debris on the tracks. Good old Betty was just wanting to get back to her home in Chicago and, very much bored, looked out the window of her train car. While doing so, Betty saw something in the distance. At first, she assumed it was a large stump or even a tree, but then this tree began to move towards the train. It stopped and just seemed to be mean mugging the train as it sat on the tracks. To confirm what she was seeing, she grabbed the attention of two fellow passengers by the names of Emily Clark and Roger Wentworth. Both passengers also saw what she did. Their best guess was that the figure was around 10 feet tall, or roughly 3 meters, and estimated its weight to be anywhere between 700 to 1,000 pounds. Which is frightening enough to see such a massive creature in the dark, but when that thing starts coming for the caboose of the train you're on, mm -mm, nope, my soul would leave my body. With impeccable timing, that is when the train began its movement once again. There was the sound of something hitting metal near the caboose but it was ignored until the train made it to its final destination in Chicago. There, it was known that the sound they heard was someone, or something, putting a major dent into the train car. Betty tried to report what she saw to her local police, but they informed her that it was outside of their jurisdiction and never looked into it. But due to her report and description, we have our first official sketch of the Dewey Lake Monster. The sketch itself went on to be known as the Garçon Train Sighting Sketch. Wow, okay, we take a considerably larger time hop than we've done prior and meet Danny Peterson and Leon Brosnan, who are eager to get some fishing done on Gear Lake on May 22nd. The two boys, though unneeded for the fishing they were doing, used heavy-tested lines on their poles. But with big hopes of even bigger fish, they didn't care and readied their fishing poles for the water. At first, nothing was happening, and the boys, disappointed, began to prepare to get the lunch out that they brought. It was then that Leon's pole began to jerk hard enough to make the boat jerk as well. Leon wasn't taking his pole to reel in whatever he had caught, so Danny took up the reins and did so. When the line was finally pulled back in, the steel leader Leon had attached was clearly bitten through, and that's when Leon elaborated that he saw a large, hairy head come out of the water, and the mouth just covered the bobber. He was freaking out, letting his friend know that he thinks the thing had eyes. Leon was told it was a garfish, which Leon claimed there was no way, knowing exactly what a garfish looked like. 
But due to this encounter, we know that Mr. Dewey Lake more than likely has really sharp teeth to go with that height and bulk. Though, just real quick, I looked up what a garfish looks like, spelled G-A-R, fish, and I laughed at the stark difference between what people describe the Dewey Lake monster as and this dang fish. Next, we go to June 20th of 1963. Our location is Fitch Camp, located in Dowajak, and our cast is four kids attending this camp. We start with Denise McCormick and Janine Fisher. Everyone was called to dinner, and at the time, Denise and Janine were at the camp's archery range. After hearing the call, they went to retrieve their last arrow, and that's when they had their own personal encounter. They later told their friends, Stacy Ashley and Rhonda Burdick, at dinner that while they were getting the arrow, noticed a, quote, huge, stinky hair man staring at them, to which their flight response kicked in, and they hightailed it back to the buildings. Of course, children being children, or heck, teens being teens, these four girls were picked on and laughed at for the remainder of the day. It didn't last long, though, because that night, one of the cabins were attacked to the point some of the girls thought the wall itself was going to cave in. While scared out of their minds, the girls thought and hoped it was their counselor since they weren't there at the time of the incident. Of course, it was claimed to not be the counselor, and pictures were taken of the damage to the side of the cabin. There were even claims of footprints, but those were washed away because the person that did so thought they were fake and wanted to get rid of any potential prank. Alright, two days later, in our 10th encounter on June 22nd, we meet a lovely married couple of 32 years, Earl and Sally Cunningham. The couple owned a cottage on Cable Lake and were settling in for their weeks-long stay when their encounter happened. While standing in the backyard of their cabin, Sally noticed a figure on the far shore. Her husband joined her and confirmed what she had noticed. They were unsure at first of what they were seeing since it was hunched over in the weeded area of the shoreline. But then the creature stood up. The beast seemed to just stare at them, and they, like all before them, noted how this creature stood upright and was very quite tall. Both a little bit unnerved that it also seemed to be gazing directly at them, but since it hadn't moved, they were more curious than frightened. Of course, that changed when the beast began taking steps into the lake towards their cottage. They were both like, frick this, and jetted back into their home. While completely spooked by what they saw, the couple decided to not call the police, assuming the police would just think that they were playing a prank. So instead, this couple had the frickin' drinks on their back porch. You know, all nonchalant. This is until they noticed how a string of bubbles were coming up from the lake and making a beeline straight for their shore. It was at this point that they called the police to inform them that they saw something odd near their property. Trying to seem all chill and not crazy, Earl was making sure to try and be really smooth and telling the cop on the phone what they had witnessed. But he stopped when he heard his wife gasp and he quickly went to see what she saw. There, outside the window, down by the shore, they saw a beast standing. It had long arms and seemed to be dripping wet as it glared at their place. Another group to nope the heck out of their situation, the couple got into their car and as quickly as possible, drove off. The car made some concerning noises while driving, but the couple ignored it, just grateful to be getting away. Later, they realized the whole flippin' bumper was missing. I probably don't need to tell you that they never went back to their quaint little cottage and went ahead and sold the thing altogether. 
On June 29th, we meet R.J. Lutz, who was fishing on the south end of Dewey Lake when he noticed a triangular shape in the water. It was pretty large and kind of just bobbing there. Unsure of what it was, since it was only about 6 a.m. and pretty dim out, he paddled closer. Big mistake, because from this big triangle came what he described as a log out of the water. Of course, it wasn't a log, my dear children, but an arm. A thick, hairy arm in the shade of red. Still thinking this was a log of some sort, RJ used his oar to poke it. Of course, our dear friend, Mr. Dewey Lake, did not like this and rose up out of the water. RJ quickly realized this was a creature and not a log, way to go RJ, and noted that it must be at least 10 feet tall. He better have been counting his lucky stars because instead of attacking, this beast made some loud, quote, clucking-like noises and then swam off away from the boat. He later sketched a picture to show a friend who just laughed it off at the time. On July 27th, friends Bob Ford and Alan Razzie were taking their canoe down to the lake to fish. They had to carry it above their heads through the thick mud and weeds. At the time, it was late, roughly 9 p.m., so only the moonlight and a pair of flashlights brightened their way. The woods surrounding them and the water itself was pitch black. At first, there was nothing to note about their surroundings besides an eerily thick fog that one of the men compared to the kind seen in horror movies. It was only when they heard a splash that the men began to get worried. But then the boat began to rock and then another, bigger splash happened before the men heard an angry roar from nearby. Not understanding what was happening, the two men sat in their canoe and looked around as they heard something breathing. It was then they noticed a large, dark figure near them and they paddled the heck out of there. Once ashore, they rushed themselves and the canoe back to their vehicle and hastily put it on. They didn't get too far before they had to stop the truck and secure it better since it had fallen off. A dude by the name of Jim Casey came across the odd scene of them cleaning up the boat and putting it back up. While not really seeming to believe the two guys, he did know they were generally tough, unshooken individuals. So for them to be scared enough to run from a good fishing trip and not even secure their boat, it had him second-guessing ever going back to that lake, called Mud Lake, by the way, ever again. On August 23rd, there was another unfortunate canoe incident and lucky encounter number 13. The canoe was found completely ruined in Pitcher Lake. Its owner, Stan Red Roberts, was nowhere in sight though. Stan was visiting from California and decided to go out alone onto the lake after a few drinks with his friend, Philip McPhee. The next morning, Philip and his son, Roger, went out to go fishing but was surprised they didn't see their friend before they left or on the lake itself. Assuming his friend just fell asleep in his boat and was floating around somewhere, the father and son got to fishing. But something was odd. There was no fish taking the bait. It was basically dead. Frustrated with their lack of treasure, they headed back home. But when Stan was still nowhere to be seen, Philip began to truly worry. A little later in the day, Philip took his boat out and was going to see if Stan, by chance, paid his neighbors a visit. But he didn't make it far before he discovered the sunken canoe his friend had borrowed the night prior near one of the shorelines. It had a large hole in it, which initially ticked Philip off. He called the sheriff out, and together they got the canoe out of the water. 
One of the kind gents that assisted the group was a retired Chicago police detective who was vacationing near the location the canoe was found. His name was Paul Wozniak, and good old Paul ended up noticing how pieces of the canoe were scattered around the area after combing the place over, curious on what had taken place the night prior. He noticed later that it seemed the hole found in the boat seemed to have happened in one forceful hit coming from the bottom of the boat. Philip's friend, Stan, was allegedly never heard of or seen again, which this is the only, to my knowledge, missing person that might be because of the monster. The date is now September 3rd of 1963, where we meet Mr. Elmer, who had just discovered a body. Elmer was retired and loved walking around and exploring his local woods. Well, on this particular morning, he ran into the Smith family, who were on their way down to the creek, and informed them that they had to get the sheriff there and quick. After the deputies arrived, they were quick to point out that the bodies were that of deer, but Elmer was more adamant about what he saw handling the carcasses. He exclaimed it was a huge animal with red hair covering its body. He said that before the animal walked away into the creek, it seemed to bark at him. After Elmer explained what he saw, the deputies declared the woods would remain open and that the carcasses would be removed. We've made it back to Halloween, but this time in 1963, of course. Our main stars of this encounter are Davis Garrett and his friend Dominique Emery. Both boys were at a party at Pitcher Lake and Davis was very excited about the camera he had just gotten for his 18th birthday. While the sun was setting, both boys noticed something across the lake. Davis, not missing a chance at using his new camera, began snapping a few shots. He didn't get to take many, though, before whatever they saw flung a whole log towards them. Luck, which I feel like I'm saying luck, lucky, and luckily way too much this episode, but luck was on their side and the log only made it about halfway to them before it fell into the lake. The creature let out an ear-splitting scream as both dashed back to the larger crowd of the party. The whole dang party ended up hearing the scream and the party promptly ended afterwards. Later, Davis did develop the pictures he took and one was dubbed the Pitcher Lake Pitcher and is claimed the figure in the picture was easily 10 feet or 3 meters tall and was ape-like in shape. Next, we have a group of four friends meeting on the south side of Dewey Lake on April 10th of 1964. With us, we have George Wright, Donna Wilkinson, Dwayne Mather, and Mary Simmons relaxing near the lake with a campfire burning on. The group noticed an awful stench and assumed it was a skunk and decided to get out of there before they got sprayed. But before they could fully gather their belongings, the group was shocked to see that a figure was stomping around their campfire. The teens claimed that the beast was large, had blood-red eyes, and was completely covered in fur with a black face. Worse, it was letting out a scream high enough to hurt their ears. Of course, they only got a few moments to take all this in before they were dashing to the safety of their car and leaving everything behind. On June 9th, we meet a woman and her bestest boy who were running from the biped beast that she guessed was around 500 pounds or 226 kilograms and at least 9 feet tall or 2.7 meters tall. Her dog was hurt during the chase, but she said it was thanks to him that she was saved. He ended up barking and chasing the monster away from the home. 
She also claimed that the very hairy being was heavy and strong enough to basically make the ground beneath her feet shake as they ran. This all took place at her home near Dewey Lake. She of course called the police and they ended up taking plaster casts of the footprints found leading up to the home and photos were taken as well. It was thanks to this that the beast finally coined the name the Dewey Lake Monster, since when the story was run in the newspapers, they wanted to give it a title. The encounter ended up being in around a hundred different newspapers around the country. Thanks to the press, many ended up flooding the area as early as the next day in hopes of seeing the creature for themselves. While tensions were high in the area, with locals concerned for themselves and others, the police wanted nothing more than to stake out the lake with their guns and take out the beast once and for all. Of course, due to the influx of people, they had to use most of their time and energy to crowd control. On June 11th, we traveled down the road with Joyce Smith and sisters Patsy and Gail Clayton. They were walking down a road in Silver Creek Township when Joyce and Patsy saw the monster before it ended up ducking into the woods. Gail said that she was too far at the time to see what they were talking about. Joyce ended up fainting, but once she was brought back, she described the monster as, quote, a giant man-creature bear with a black face. The girls promptly ran back to the sister's home, apparently picking up an odd scent during their encounter and called the police. Some deputies came to search the area. On June 15th, it was noted that five migrant families from Texas ended up fleeing the Dowajak area in fear for their lives. Each group left within a few days of the last and most of the families were working at different farm locations in the area. While all sudden, the reason claimed was the same throughout. They were scared, point blank. They believed there was a dangerous animal roaming and didn't want to stay and be a victim. It was noted that each of these families were reliable, level-headed, great workers and they wouldn't have left due to just stories. Their employers knew they had to have seen something. Just one day later, on June 16th, we have our 20th encounter. Around sunset, Rico Garcia and Emilio Lopez were picking up some crates that some fellow co-workers lost earlier on the road. It was while the men were loading crates onto their own truck that they saw something in the distance, roughly 100 yards or just a little over 91 meters away. At first, the gentleman thought it was a loose horse, but it sounded like a goose. At least Rico claimed it did. They did note that even for a horse, it was huge and very hairy. Things were chill until they realized the horse just stood up on its hind legs and was beginning to walk. Already freaking out, they did so even more once the creature seemed to turn its attention to their direction. Not giving the creature a chance to get any closer, both men dashed back to their truck and hopped on in. Forgetting all about the crates that were left, they sped off. Of course, they had the monster's attention, though, and weren't going to get away that easily. The chase was on. They saw the beast in the rearview mirror and noted how it might be a grizzly with how it was moving as it ran. The creature seemed to be keeping up, but when they reached Town Hall Road, they thought they had lost it and could finally catch their breath and take in what they had witnessed. Nope. Somehow, the monster was now in front of the truck, breathing heavily. Not wasting a second, Rico, the one driving, backed up the truck and got the heck out of Dodge. 
Both men quit their jobs and moved back to Texas a week later. On July 4th, Daniel Ortez, John Allen, and Telmo Villa were trespassing while looking for arrowheads and any other small treasures they could find with a metal detector when they had their own encounter. It was getting late and they noticed what looked like a large bull roaming free where it shouldn't be. Though, lucky for them, it was at least on the other side of an electric fence. They didn't think much about it until the bull stood up on his back legs and let out a sound that reminded them of a snort. The group quickly realized this thing was even bigger than any bull they'd seen and before they could even do much to react, the creature stepped over the fence and was now very close to them. John claimed the monster had glowing red eyes which spooked him and he raised his metal detector in hopes of scaring it off. It, of course, didn't. It stared at them for a time with the three frozen in shock before screaming at them and dashing off in the direction of Dewey Lake Street. Despite the concerns about getting in trouble for trespassing, they knew they had to notify the police, so they did. Jumping to October 17th, we are told of one of the migrant workers that originally stayed after the five families earlier had fled. He, along with his daughter to help translate, contacted Betty Garcon on October 20th of 1965, after she placed up copies of the sketch she had done of her description of the monster almost two years prior. The flyers were put up all around the town of Doajack. Someone saw the flyer in town and mailed it to Miguel Garcia, who had his daughter call the contact number Betty left. He said while he was working on October 17th of 1964, some plastic had blown off into the woods and he went to retrieve it. Now, he wasn't concerned since he thought the families who fled were basically overreacting and that there wasn't anything to be afraid of. While he was gathering the plastic back up, he realized there was a horrible stench in the air. Trying to figure out where the smell was coming from, he looked towards the trees and he saw one of the supposed trees step forward. Being the smart man that he is, he ran like hell right afterwards, completely forgetting about the plastic covering. As he ran, he could feel the ground beneath him shaking as he heard and smelled this beast chasing after him. His lungs were ready to burst when he finally made it to the barn on the property and fell to the ground just trying to catch his breath. The creature was super fast, though, and was already standing above him, seeming to be ready to take him back to the woods or kill him right there. But as quickly as the event occurred, the monster had seemed to just vanish, scent and all. Miguel quit the next day and returned home to Texas. All right, yet another Halloween special. We land on October 31st of 1964. Rhonda Likens and Russ Chenny were driving back in Russ's truck from their local feed store when they saw a pretty large shadow move from their line of sight into the ditch on the side of the road. They slowed down, but as they got closer to the spot, a, quote, giant man-thing dashed suddenly at the truck. The creature lifted the truck and promptly slammed it back down. Continuing this ride from hell, the beast spun the truck around and proceeded to do the same to the back of the truck. You'd probably think, just drive, you fool. But Russ did admit that it was all very sudden and they kept getting spun around and it was very disorienting. When he was finally able to drive away, he could tell something was very wrong with the truck, but he didn't care. He was just happy to get away. 
After getting to his cousin's house, the two explained what had happened and of course they were laughed off. Good old Mr. Dewey Lake came running at the house at that time though, apparently not enjoying being made a joke. The small group quickly took up arms and tried shooting at the beast and it took around 20 minutes for silence to fall. But then, Russ heard the sound of his truck being flipped over. Fortunately, that was the end of their hellish night. Even though apparently Russ wasn't insured, so he was out of a ride. Which really, really sucks. Alright, so that was the last main sighting from the 1960s. We now time warp our way to 1970 on June 12th. Steve, walking along with his friend Mark, heard a branch snapping nearby before a roughly 8 plus foot or almost 2.5 plus meters tall hairy creature stepped out and just stared at them. Of course, both dudes ran off and once they felt they were a safe distance away, caught their breath and verified what they had just saw. Both confirmed the thing seemed to have elongated arms and a snout looking like a pig. As they were calmly walking and chatting about what the heck they just witnessed, they heard a few more branches snapping and took off once more. They went as fast as they could until they reached Steve's house where they phoned the police and explained what had just happened. We jump another year to 1971 on June 25th. Though, during this encounter in the book, it said, quote, June of 1978 is when the event occurred, which actually could have easily been a typo. So I'm going to assume the encounter happened in 1971 due to the timeline of the book. Anyway, on June 25th, a Mr. Charles Gardner was driving drunk from South Bend, Indiana to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and was just a little bit north of Doajack when he saw the monster. He saw what he thought was a bear on its hind legs running across the highway. Instead of finishing its dash across the highway, the bear stopped in front of the car and stared him down. Charles said he attempted to back the heck out of there, but the beast seemed to take hold of his car and encave the hood. Seeming enraged, the beast proceeded to, quote, wipe the road with his car, which I assume means that Mr. Dewey Lake grabbed hold of the car and just dragged it back and forth repeatedly. After this going on for several moments, the creature seemed satisfied and ran off. While he did fix his car, Charles never did fix the hood of his car, keeping it as kind of like a souvenir from his ordeal. Next, we have Terry Gill, just relaxing in his home just within Doajack City Lines, chilling on August 26th of 1972. He was glancing outside his window and a large shadow seemed to take up all the space. The shadowed figure quickly seemed to leave, but Terry noticed how the beast seemed to have some scales and was easily 10 feet or 3 meters tall and around 500 pounds. Whew, okay, another major jump. We go to May 21st of 1981, where Jason Gordon and Donnie Neubauer were having a few drinks while fishing on Priest Lake. The pair hear some splashing nearby and decide to paddle their little boat on over. They didn't end up trying to fish, though, due to the fear of their lines getting caught up in the weeds in that area. So instead, they decided to lean back and just have some more drinks. Before they could get the good vibes fully going, there seemed to be a little whirlpool of sorts that ended up rocking their boat to the point that it was possibly going to turn over. But as quickly as it began, it stopped and the whirlpool seemed to go away. At first, they thought it was funny, you know, due to being drunk. 
But the laugh stopped when whatever it was got out of the water and they took in the beast that almost toppled their boat. The men described it as a, quote, tree-like hulk that instead of turning back or attacking again, just went into the woods not to be seen again. Oh, okay, we are just hopping around now. So, on April 20th of 1995, we find Eric Perlman with his son, David, hunting for mushrooms in a sweet spot a friend told them of prior. As they left the road and entered into the brush is when they had their encounter. The Dewey Lake monster just kind of passed them by, though, barely sparing them a glance before moving on. The book confirms that there was no mushrooms picked that day. I know you were concerned. Now, we're getting a bit more recent. We go to 2009 on July 17th, where TJ Danbridge is in Decatur, Michigan to do some fishing. He parked near Twin Lakes Road, but it doesn't take long for him to notice an odd stench in the air, so he changes spots only to find a decaying body of some animal. What the animal was was not specified in the book. He went ahead and started going to the other side of the riverbank, avoiding the area altogether. Before he could cross, though, a Google Maps car, of all things, was driving by, so TJ hid, not really wanting to be captured on it, which I promise is relevant. Once the car was out of sight and he began to get a move on again, he noticed the smell he was trying to avoid earlier was now stronger. He only took one step onto the road to cross when his encounter officially started. He said the beast was on the other side of the road and was very tall and covered in red hair. It seemed to have lizard-like qualities, elongated arms, long bear-like claws, and was very much visibly mad. You know, like breathing heavily. Before TJ could fully process what he was seeing, an even larger version of the creature in front of him stepped out from the trees behind the smaller beast. Knowing when to quit, TJ abandoned his gear and dashed back to his truck. Papa Monster was already there, though, but on the passenger side. Not wasting another moment, he hopped into the driver's side and sped off. Remember the mention of the Google Maps car? Well, apparently after telling the story a few times, TJ's sister decided to look up the area on Google Maps and claimed to have seen a hairy red hand peeking out in one of the images. The image was eventually seen by Doug Ranwright, who was a retired anthropologist. He concluded it was not photoshopped and couldn't debunk the image. Okay, take a deep breath with me because we have reached the last main encounter. So, on June 9th of 2010, around Dewey Lake, three friends were hanging out, visiting from Chicago. They took a six-pack and were walking near the south side of the lake when they saw a tree seeming to be in the way. But they quickly realized this tree had a horrible smell to it and seemed to let out a roar of sorts before they noticed the red eyes it sported. The friends, of course, made a break for it, originally breaking apart, but coming together at the car and getting the heck out of there. Now, during a lot of these times, especially in the mid-60s, people were in deep fright and essentially monster fever. Groups would go hunting, looking for the beast, and police were on constant patrol for a creature looking like what the locals were describing. They were also keeping eyes on the locals along with the visitors coming in because at times it would get dangerous with most people tending to be on edge and almost shooting other hunters in the process. 
and their job was cut out for them with thousands of visitors coming to the town during this time. I'm sure the police were very much relieved that after a short while of no one catching the monster, despite the hunts and patrol, the monster fever seemed to slowly die down and things, for the most part, returned to normal. It is said that during these hunts, there were several footprint casts done, but most, if not all, being poor quality due to the quality of the sand they were captured in. Also, there was sometimes odd, thick tufts of hair found during encounters or in the area that didn't seem to match that of the average wildlife. No need to worry, though, because even though the monster fever of the 60s has died down, the legend has not. As noted, there were some occurrences in the following decades, and even now, there are those claiming to catch sightings of the beast in the area. There are those, of course, who doubt the legend and believe this monster is just a misidentified bear or even a gorilla of all things, even though there has been many to argue encounter this assessment. So, if you ever find yourself in Michigan and want to chill by one of the lakes, be sure to keep an ear, eye, and even nose out for a beast before he slips out of the woods or lake and getcha. Woo! Okay, that was a lot, I will admit. How about we take a break and relax with a nice little drink? If you're of the beer-loving variety, you might want to see if you can get your hands on the Dewey Lake Monster Beer from Sister Lakes Brewing Company. I know, right? Granted, I am not a beer drinker, and I'd much rather have that bandage man whiskey. But finding this out just made me very happy, and now I'm going to have to look into every urban legend slash cryptid to see if they have an alcoholic beverage named after them. For those curious, it is a 9.8% alcohol by volume and clocks out at 115 IBU, which I learned for the sake of this episode that it stands for International Bitterness Units, which I didn't know they measured that in drinks. Interesting. It hosts a rating of 3.8 out of 5 on the site Untapped, and you can get it at the Sister Lakes Brewing Company located in Doajack, Michigan. Speaking of Sister Lakes Brewing Company, though, they did host the Dewey Lake Monster Conference on October 17th of 2020, which was run by a group known as LCC, or Lost Cryptids Conservatory. The conference, or at least a panel from it, can be found on YouTube if you're interested. Another event that took place in the cryptid's honor was a boat parade. Well, okay, it's not an annual parade in his honor, though that would have been awesome. But in 2016, the Dewey Lake Boat Parade's theme was the Dewey Lake Monster. There's even a Facebook page called Dewey Lake Monster that posts drawings slash art of the monster, images of the area, and anything else to do with the monster of Dewey Lake. It looks like it's not active anymore, the last post being from October of 2019. But thanks to it, I found a song someone made in honor of the monster. It's called Dewey Lake Monster by Jimmy Glenwood and the Brown Jug Hillbillies. And it's usually not my kind of jam, but I do admit it got a few laughs out of me. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I do recommend looking it up afterwards. Okay, we have reached the pop culture section of the pod, and I am very sad to say that there's not much to tell this week. I couldn't really find any movies or horror shorts on YouTube, and in books, the main one that popped up is the one I used to assist me with the encounters called Sightings, Dewey Lake Monster. 
In music, there's that song I mentioned a moment ago, but there's also one called Do Not Go Down to Dewey Lake by Calders, which I really hope I said that right. Which I do admit, this is an interesting one. I do recommend looking it up as well. But also, there's something I came across that I was not expecting to do so, but I thought was really, really cool. So, there was a radio show done called Terror on Dewey Lake, and was performed by those at Southwestern Michigan College in October of 2020. I gave it a listen, and I think it was really fun. If you wanted to listen to something while you cleaned or worked, it's worth a shot. Alright, it is time for the horror movie recommendation of the week. Once again, I am not even going to tease y'all and just tell you that my recommendation is Attack the Block from 2011. This movie is about a gang of teens who have to defend their apartment complex and essentially the world from aliens that have just landed and began wreaking havoc. Their home becomes a battleground as they do their best to survive and save everyone else. This movie is a lot of fun and I enjoyed it far more than I thought I would. You see, I'm not a big alien horror fan, but I did truly like this one. If you give it a shot, I do hope you enjoy it as well. Okay, that is it for this week, my wee gordettes. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, and if you want to be reminded of episode releases or sometimes other antics, be sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or even Facebook at TJOHpodcast. And of course, please don't forget to leave a rating and a review on iTunes, Podchaser, or even my Facebook page if you enjoyed today's episode. It warms my heart to see new ones, and it also helps the pod out. Other than that, please be sure to be looking out for yourself. Sometimes your gut is your best warning system, and if your gut tells you that you need to make a break or take a break, listen to it. Don't be too hard on yourself and try to do what is best for you. With all my love, I hope you have a spooky night.